chewing the fat and talking balls as always. It's, well, it's been a couple of weeks, and I'm happy to say at the sports bar is Brent Peters. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Are you I'm in not lockdown? Too bad. I'm not too bad. Well, <laughs> you're all right, are you? Isn't it? <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's all coming, right. Brent. It's covered. It seems like a duration since we were uh, last on the show when we had our our last guest, which was Kevin Blackwell. Um, you know, and, and their season starting, and it's sad. It's sad to hear that uh, you know we had Kevin on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and as we know, he's assistant to Neil Warnock, and it was all reported yesterday that he's going. He's in self isolation now because he's uh, contracted uh, traces of COVID. Uh, we hope, hopefully it's uh, nothing serious, and uh, we hope that he's soon back where he should be at, in the technical area. Yeah, but you, you think about it though, Brent. It, you know, those guys have been getting tested, you know, week in, week out, and even they are still contracting the virus. Well, that's right. You know, they, they're with all the people, with all the top medical. They've got all the everything. You know, and th this is why I, I could never, I, co I couldn't really get my head round. The fact that, whilst I'm grateful that you know at non-league level where we are, that we're we're back playing, we can we can come back playing and we can play with you know restricted crowds. I could never understand why the EFL and the Barclays Premier League couldn't come back with the same format because let's be honest, they're more equipped. They've got more bodies and more equipped. They've got better equipment to to deal with to to, to deal with everything that we've us non-league clubs have had to Im implement and put into place. So again, it didn't make it didn't make it didn't make sense to me that they. I mean, I know they're looking at it, and I know that they're going to trial it. I think one or two clubs are being trialed this weekend. But like you know, last weekend, you know, it just didn't make sense to me that the non-league clubs could play with restricted. Uh, uh, Crowds, but the EFL and Barclays uh, Premier League couldn't, um, you know, and and yet they're better equipped. Yeah, well, there's been so much, you know, so much contradiction going on at the moment. The left hand doesn't seem to know what the right hand's doing, and uh, well, I, think, I don't know. Nobody, nobody knows what's going on. Well, I think uh, our friend Chris Wilder from uh, Sheffield United summed that up perfectly <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> It's mad. It's, we're in a mad world. We're in a mad world. But talking about mad worlds, it, it, it's a pleasure today to bring somebody on our show that's, um, you know, they tell me that uh, football or sport and politics don't mix. Well, in this instance, sport and politics do mix because, yeah. you know, we've got a guest on our show that uh, was a former MP. For those who don't know what MP means, it's a member of parliament. So <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else then. No, I'm on a sports bar show. I can't say anything else. Uh, <laughs> you were trying to gag me, weren't you, before it came out? But it didn't come out. You see, I'm in control. I'm in control of my destiny. So, no, he's a, he's a, uh, a former member of parliament. Uh, he was a member of parliament for the uh, Ribble Valley. Um, so he knows quite what goes on down in uh, the capital. Yeah. Um, but since then, he's been a, a governor, he's been a school teacher in the Rossendale Valley um, at uh, Thorne School across from us, and 
He's been a governor at, uh, he might still be a governor, actually, at Aldergrange uh, High School. Um, and I'm pleased to say that he's a big part of Baker Football Club, who he um, he's kind of our match day administrator who confirms all the fixtures. And he confirms how he does that. You know, this is modern day technology. I mean, he doesn't live in the Rosendale Valley. He's up in the, he's kind of uh, up in the uh, wilds of uh, North Yorkshire. But uh, it, it's pleasing to have uh, on our show today, would you welcome uh, former Member of Parliament, Michael Carr. Morning. Hey, all Morning, right. Michael. Yeah, thanks for the introduction, Brent. Uh, it's a long time since I was actively involved in politics, and thank God I'm not involved now. Uh, I wouldn't, <laughs> on, a <ser> <laughs> on a serious note, I wouldn't like to have to be the people making the decisions. It's very difficult for them. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you do wonder sometimes, um, do they listen to the advice properly from the people who are advising them? Uh, I mean, they'll be getting bombarded with uh, requests, suggestions, advice from all sorts of quarters, you know, from medical people, from business people. And it's a difficult job. Um, we're in an area here, the northeast, where we've been put under restrictive measures again, the ones that you're likely to get down in Lancashire fairly soon. Uh, pubs shutting at 10 o'clock, no mixing of households, that kind of thing. Um, and it's just a fact of life at the moment. It's a horrible thing, this virus. Um, it's going to run its course. We've not got a vaccine yet. Hopefully there will be one. Um so I think we're in for a, we'll have to get used to this kind of thing for a while, I think, you know, before things get back to normal. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not going to slag off the government and I'm not going to slag off any politicians. Uh, I think the work in the early stages, if in my candid opinion, I think we should have locked down a week to a week or so earlier. I think they were a bit slow off the mark in that respect. Um, and I think the, clearly what this has highlighted uh, are things that we need to put right as a country. We weren't prepared for it properly. Uh, I mean, the reaction building the Nightingale hospitals and all that kind of thing, I think it was pretty good, you know, and the NHS has done a, a sterling job. Um, but it did catch us on the hop. But it's a new virus. We knew nothing about it. Um, the scientists and the medical people have basically learned on the spot. I know they've dealt with viruses before, um, but this particular one is a new one. And uh, they are going hell-bent to get a vaccine. And uh, they're, not only that, they're developing treatments as well, uh, which they've had to do as they've dealt with, you know, scores of patients coming into hospitals. So I think they've done a great job in uh, in getting more up to speed than they were. I think the uh, NHS, I was listening to somebody on the television this morning, uh, a, a medical chap, and they're much better prepared now than they were prior to the outbreak happening in the first instance. Um, so, you know, um, if we do get a, a bigger spike, they're better prepared to deal with it. I hope we don't, and I hope the measures that the um, government's put in um, are going to work. I think the th one of the things I noticed that's changed in relation to um, the recent announcements of measures is that the government seems to be listening more now to local authorities. I mean, up here in the northeast, for example, it was the uh, the five northeastern local authorities got together 
and lobbied the government for this and the government fair play to them responded uh, and acted on local um, information and local knowledge could things be better well yes of course um, in terms of tracing there's a bit of an issue with uh, with testing and tracing um, capacity issues but also I think maybe instead of trying to run everything from the centre which is what the government appear to have done they ought to have devolved some of the day-to-day -day administration of the testing and the rest of it to local health authorities the people who are on the ground and know what the situation is in their area um, but there we are I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions um, it's very easy looking back hindsight's a wonderful thing too you can you can spot spot mistakes after they've been made you can't always see them coming before they're made uh, i wish we could so yeah, wise words there uh, michael wise words i think when you were in parliament it wouldn't have been uh, it wouldn't have been covid what would it have been dick theory or something <laughs> what, what were they <laughs> <laughs> i'm not that old friend. <laughs> I know it can give you a few years, but uh, no, we weren't, we weren't writing on slates then, you know. We did have pencils then. <laughs> uh, Are you supposed to be a serious show, this? <laughs> oh, I'll be very serious, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah just wait till I, oh, I've got the tales to tell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know it is a football show. My, my first, you know, growing up in Preston, I mean, there was only one person mattered. And that was Tom Finney when I was a lad. He was my boyhood hero. And, of course, we were all gutted when, uh, you know, when uh, Preston were relegated from the old first division in 1961 and Tom Finney retired. Uh, and then in 1964, they managed to get to the FA Cup final. That was a great season. And so I was a, I was a season ticket holder and I went to away games and the lot. And had a great time during that time. And just in the, in the run-up to the... Uh, the church I used to go to, we, we, one of our uh, church members, a fellow called Ben Miller, and he was the official hairdresser to the Preston team. And of course, he did the you know the cup final haircut and all that kind of stuff, kitted them out in suits before they went. But he arranged for the team to come to our youth club, you know, before the cup final. So we met them all, and um, it was a great team with a player. Then our go leading goal scorer that season was a fellow called Alex Dawson, who was a former Busby Bay Brent, so you'll be aware of him. He recently died and there was a tribute to him at Manchester United and at Preston. And he was a big, he was built like a rugby player, you know, and he used to bundle keepers into the net. And in those days, of course, uh, <laughs> referees didn't protect keepers like they do now. You know, if you banged into a keeper, Wynn Davis was another one at Bolton, that Lofthouse, they used to clatter into him, ball would go over the line. That was it, it was a goal. But, well, Dawson, he had 30 odd goals that season. He was a great player. Um, and another player who actually made his debut, well, not his first team debut, but was actually the youngest player ever to play in an FA Cup final at that point, was Howard Kendall, um, who later went on to manage Everton and, and Blackburn, I think he was there too. But um, getting back to the youth club story, I was walking home, you know, all the North End players turned up and everybody was there at the youth club and getting autographs and the rest of it. And I was on walking home and this car stopped. He says, would you like a lift, sir, son? He called me. And I looked at it, it was, uh, it was Howard Kendall. So I got a lift home from Howard Kendall. So there you go, that's my early football story. And then again, a, a link with uh, Tom Finney again. 
Uh, I mean, my father had a news agent, so we knew about, I mean, Tom Finney was a legend. I mean, he's probably Preston's most famous son. You know, he's got a, a stadium named after him there's, uh, or a stand named after him. There's a, a road named after him. Um, and he, he was a lovely fella, but I didn't get to meet him until I was an MP. You know, I, I knew there was another player called Tommy Thompson who played as an inside forward. Uh, and he lived on our road, so I knew him. And my father knew uh, one of the other North End players who had a, a news agents down the road from ours. Uh, but I didn't meet Tom Finney until I was an MP. And it was at the time when we had a plastic pitch at Preston. And so they used to have a lot of community events on, on, the, on the pitch there. And uh, I got an invite to this community event. And the, the, uh, I was MP for Ribble Valley, but it covered part of the Preston area. And I was lucky enough to represent the area that I grew up in as a lad for a while. I was only an MP for a year and then, you know, but there we go. Uh, anyway, I was invited to this uh, community event and they sent an invitation to all the local MPs. Well, I was the only one who turned up. The Preston MP was a lady called Audrey Wise. Well, I don't think she was interested in football. She certainly didn't come there. So I got to meet Tom Finney and I got to meet Bobby Charlton because he was the manager at the time. And uh, that was a great pleasure because they go back a long way because Bobby Charlton's first ever goal for England was scored from a cross from Tom Finney. And I've watched the interview with Bobby Charlton where he says, you know, he because Finney was Bobby Charlton's idol. He used to go and watch games to see Tom Finney play. And he said to actually get a cross for my first goal from Tommy Finney was an absolute pleasure. So, and, it, and I got to meet both of them and there was a photograph taken of me heading the ball. One of them threw it and I headed it to the other and I've lost the damn photograph. I can't, we've looked all over for it and I can't find it. So that was my kind of introduction to football. I mean, the school I went to initially, my mother in her wisdom decided it'd be a good idea when I passed me 11 plus to go to St. Joseph's College in Blackpool. Now, why she'd pick me, you know, so I had to get a bus into Preston and then another one out to Blackpool. And they played rugby there. Well, I wasn't the slightest bit interested in rugby. And then at the end of the third year, I transferred to the Catholic College in Preston. Well, they played soccer there, football. Uh, but because I'd not been at the school, nobody knew what it was like. And I'd kind of had three years out of football. So I wasn't very good, really. And every Wednesday, we used to go, we used to have to walk from the centre of Preston, where the school was, over a bridge to the river to a, at some playing fields near in Penwitham. Uh, the good playing fields and of course everybody else was known to the staff so all the teams were picked and then anybody who hadn't been picked in a team was told you're the remnants that's what they called us the remnants <laughs> so we had to go and you know set up ourselves and have our own game with the, you know they didn't weren't bothered about us so we just used to you know mess about um and then then it then it was sunday football was the next thing for me um i was never very good but we had a decent young team we started a team ourselves um just to play friendlies initially and because we'd played alongside each other for a while we knew how each other played and we'd we were all very young we thought right let's go in the sun lancashire evening post sunday league and see how we do and we started off we did really well to kick off you know when the pitches were all in good nick but you'll remember brent won't you playing on the old pitches once the rain comes <laughs> anyway you know September, earlier you know august september the pitches were great but then come the uh the wetter months they deteriorated and, and the refs used to used to place ankle deep in mud anyway we, we we remember we played this team called deepdale labor club 
and uh, we beat them about 4-1, I think, something like that. And as we were walking off, I'd scored a goal. I'd gone up and I'd headed a goal. Their centre-half came ambling up to me, says, just bloody wait till pitches are damp. <laughs> and I thought, all right, and I never thought anything of it. Well, the next time we played them, it was the middle of November. It had been bogging it down for days, so the pitches were awful. And we got a corner, so I went up for this corner. Next to him, I'm flat on my face in the mud. And uh, then this, and I felt this hand yanked me back up. And uh, it was a sat centre half. He says, I told you I'd get you. <laughs> that was, so yeah, it was a baptism of fun. We're doing great until the pitches went. And then, of course, it, you know, it, it reduced everybody to the same level, same level. And these were all big, hefty, boozing lads, you know. So there we go. That was my introduction to football. <laughs> Didn't put me off. <laughs> so, so, so your 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 into your introduction to uh, music and Bake Up Borough. Aye, yeah, there's a story. Yeah, well, after I lost my seat as an MP, I mean, the two things that I've, I've, I've I love football and I love music, rock music, folk music, reg, all sorts. I like it. And after I'd lost my seat, I've got friends who played in groups, you know, and uh, I thought, we've not got much of a scene going in Rossendale. Well, you remember the Stannards who had the uh, Royal Hotel, Brent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the first, the, the, I used so I talked to Paul Stannard. I said, look, you know, we, we want to start putting live music on. So can we use your function room? And he said, yeah, you can, you're, no charge. Um, and uh, so we got this going and we got a really good scene going with bands coming from all over the place. And then, I thought, well, there's that the old football club up at Bakeup. Now I knew some of the people who were running. This was before Brent came along. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, it certainly wasn't like it is now. Um, so we went in, and we I managed to contact the guy who uh, I thought ran the place. He said, "Yeah, you can do things here." Anyway, we, we, they came. They put somebody on the bar, and another time I turned up. You know, it was a bit out of the way. And with a few old hippies, you know them, Brent, don't you, lived in the area and they used to come yeah. to the gigs. And uh, we had a good time, you know, and they, uh, it was out of the way, so nobody bothered them. And uh, one night we went, I turned up about eight o'clock to, to open the doors. This bloke says, oh, he says, I can't be asked." He says, you run the bar. And he just left me, you know, so we could have drunk his beer. We didn't. I mean, I took it and left the money, but... But that's the kind of that that's how professional it was <laughs> before Brent came along. And another time, well, Brent will tell you he turned up one just after he took over, or just while uh, well, he was about to take over. Uh, and he'll tell you a story in a minute. But before he does that, um, we'd one a gig one night, and we packed up to go. And this is the state of the building. We came the following morning to pick the gear up, and the ceiling had collapsed on top of the PA system, you know, <laughs> and buried it. So we had to clear all this, you know, like plasterboard and everything off the top of these speakers before we could get them out. But anyway, Brent will tell you this time he turned up. Uh, yeah, he hadn't actually taken over. Uh, I were on the peripheral of taking over at Bake Up Borough and uh, the, the, the previous people who uh, Michael's referring to, they said, um, oh, we, we let this uh, music group come in every uh, every week. So I said, uh, you know, they were on set. So I walked in here at uh, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, you know, thinking nobody were in. And I'm walking in, place is pitch black. I'm walking in, all of a sudden, there's like screeching going on and, and, and bodies moving. I thought, what, what, what the hell's going on in here? And there's a body scattered all over the place. It all fell asleep downstairs, in the club, laid out, sprawled out. 
under the influence of alcohol and probably uh, uh, right, other things. No, uh, no, uh, no doubt. So yeah, that was my uh, that was my first introduction. I I nicknamed it. Uh, I don't know whether I should say this, Michael, but I nicknamed it the Ward Eleven Club. <laughs> For all those that don't understand what Ward Eleven is, it's. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it were a unit on the hospital where people who had uh, too much alcohol or uh, too much of the other substance and they needed to go and dry out. So, but you know what? Let, no joking apart. I've got to say this because in all the time that uh, you know since my involvement, Michael's continually to run these events and uh, and these people that come to these events. Let me tell you. Absolutely a different class. There, you, you, there's never touch wood. There's never been any trouble. There's never been. Uh, they're so laid back. <laughs> that laid back. They're horizontal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you know what I mean? It, you know, great. You know, you could. Uh, you, you didn't need to have uh, doormen because there were never no trouble, and they were mixing, and they're you know great people. Yeah. Well, I'll back that up. Yeah. I mean, uh, we were. I remember just going back to the Ward 11 thing. Um, when when we knew Brent had taken the club over, some of these guys were saying, do you think he'll let us in? Like, you know, because we knew he used to be a DJ. He was the Brent, uh, the Peter Brent Roadshow, I think it was. And, you know, he was used to playing disco music to more sophisticated crowds, shall I say it that way, than the... Than the, than the crowd who were coming to our dues and they were, and some of them were a bit worried that they wouldn't be able to keep because there was a great vibe and I'll tell you in a bit you know some of the musicians who we've had through here they love coming here because it's always a it's a dead friendly uh, audience it might not be a large audience but they're dead friendly they get on with the musicians they've come along they're prepared to listen to music that they might not have heard before and that's a great thing if you're a musician and you're writing your own songs it's hard to get work and, and we were providing that for people and Brent allowed us to, you know, let us come in anyway, before he, before we knew he would, I think going back to the Ward 11 thing, I think some of them, they tell you they were raising money for Ward 11 or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Him, you know, cause they knew he, he was kind of uh, open to charitable things cause he's done them himself. So I think they were trying to con you that, uh, because they were worried that you're, you're not going to let these bloody hippies in, you know, <laughs> anyway, having said that, the fact that uh, one, because the Royal Hotel shut, I mean, it's it's a hell of a building, and it's just done nothing for years, and uh, so our, that that dried up. So the, the the Footy Club was a place where we could we knew we could have food, and as a result of that, um, we've had bands from the states who've come and played here. We've had bands from Germany. We had a band who was called Spithead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and they were a kind of what did they call themselves as as uh, described themselves as uh, as well they were a ska punk band you know uh, so it's kind of ska beats and punk lyrics very good band but they drove all the way to Birmingham and played for petrol money just because they enjoyed playing and they they were a funny lot they used to they used to tour with a dog they, they took take a dog with them wherever they went and. Uh, the dog had come into the venue and it was just sit there. It was no problem. And it's sit there, listen to the music and then go out with them when they went off. And if ever they went to a venue where they weren't treated very well, <laughs> they used to let the dog in and tell it to piss. And the dog used to pee on the bar. <laughs> so that was very <laughs> treated properly. <laughs> 
Well, 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 that's reminiscent of. Uh, 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 of uh, I came in behind the bar one day. I'm not mentioning. Uh, I'm not mentioning the person's name, but Michael all knew who it is, and I couldn't believe it. She's 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 got a goldfish in her goldfish ball. She's dancing around to goldfish, and then she's talking to goldfish. And I'm thinking, why, well, mate? I'm in the right. But probably I should be. I should be one of them. You know, put blinking with these cold pots for eggs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I know exactly who you mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're bonkers, some of them. But, but they're a great crowd, and we've had some fantastic nights there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. One, one particular band who we, we got to know by chance from Atlanta. Uh, and I got a telephone call from from another promoter uh, saying, look, I've got these two American bands, and we, we were booked into play on this particular night, and we've been let down. Do you know anybody who... You know, put us on. I said, well, yeah, I'll put you on, you know. So we put them on with um, a local band. I mean, you know JT, don't you? Well, he's yeah. he's died. Yeah, yeah. Well, a great guy, Jim Thomas. And he, he used to have a blues band, JT's Blues Band. But his son, who now lives in New Zealand, had a band called the Free Spirits. And they got a bit of a following. So we put them on with the Free Spirits. And the, the band I'm talking about, a gringo star. And there was another band with them called Wormwood Scrubs. So we put these two American bands on. <laughs> Wormwood Scrubs. Nothing to do, apparently, it's to do with some outback area in America then. Not the prison in London. But anyway, we put them both on. And they were a kind of like a southern rock boogie band with Wormwood Scrubs. But Gringo Star were just something different, you know. And um, they went down really, really well. And they've built up a following, haven't they, Brent? You know, yeah. In, yeah. in uh, and, and every time they come back now, they, we try and get them on at the football club. It's harder now because they've got a, an agent in Italy who deals with all the European tours, you know. And uh, there's very few slots now allocated to Britain. But they came back, and uh, and JT used to put these bands up at his house. You know, we'd feed them, and then JT had put them up at his house. And there was always a big party at JT's after the gigs. Uh, and they they called JT their rock and roll daddy. <laughs> you know, they used to come from America, and we we always felt when we were putting a band on, if a band's come from miles away, they're miles away from home, we've we've got to look after them. So we did, you know. And and as a result, we you know they put the word around. So we've had various American bands playing there. Yeah, going back to the Gringo Star, uh, you know they were fantastic. And these these are you know for anybody that doesn't know, you I mean they will probably still be on. They'll probably still be on YouTube, but absolutely fantastic. And they're playing in, you know, they're playing in, in stadiums now where, uh, you know, all thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah, they're a good band. And, uh, you know, they, they're still touring. I mean, the band's basically made, the, the, the two kingpins of the band are a couple of brothers, Nick and Pete. And the, the various, the band, other memberships have changed over the years. But they've got a really interesting background because um, their grandfather used to run a record shop and also used to do radio shows in Atlanta. And Atlanta, of course, is the Deep South. Well, historically, that was an area where there was a lot of tension between, you know, the, the, where the blacks weren't, very treat, weren't treated well at all. But he was known as Dr. Jive. And he was the first promoter in Atlanta to put Aretha Franklin on in a mixed race venue and and they grew up listening to Sam Cooke and Aretha Franklin and then the Beatles and the Kinks all that kind of thing they were very much influenced by 
you know, 50s doo-wop stuff, soul music and, you know, the British invasion of bands that kind of went over with and after the Beatles. So they're a great, great band and nice lads as well. Um, and they still come back to England. We've had them on up here in Teesdale a couple of times and that was by chance as well, you know. And it's very different up here to to, to Bake Up. Well, another another American band we had on, one only it was a Tuesday night and it was the only night they could do and they'd been playing some big city thing in Manchester. They were called Modern Skirts. They've split up now. Uh, and they played, there were about 25 people in on a Tuesday night. I said, we'll put you on, but don't, don't expect a big, big audience on a Tuesday night on, in Bake Up in February, you know. Anyway, they played and they were brilliant. And then in July, they opened up for REM at uh, Hyde Park and in Amsterdam. So you never know. And then with another American guy called Ned Evert, you can look him up at some point, and he plays a fretless guitar. You know, there's no frets on it, glass neck fretless guitar, and he's absolutely superb player. Well, he was touring with a fella called Joe Satriani, who's a big name in you know jazz blues guitar, and he had a tour T-shirt made and uh, at Ned, and on the on the back of the T-shirt it listed all the places he was playing. So the first name was Amsterdam, and the second one was Bakeup, and I bet that's the only time that Bakeup has ever appeared on the tour T-shirt of a of an artist who's you know, playing stadiums all over Europe. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So we've had some great times with music, yeah. Yeah. And then with the football as well, I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you how I got roped in. I mean, actually, you know the um, the Eagles song, Hotel California, and there's a the line in the song that says, you can check out, but you can never leave. So it's like that with Makeup Borough. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of... Um, I've been putting these events on and Brent was after somebody to help on the commercial side and, and he said to Deborah <laughs> So he, he said to Deborah, you know Mick who puts these uh, events on there, you get a few people in for that, you think he might be interested so I was approached, I said yeah alright I'll, I'll have a do, well I'm not really a good salesman so anyway, but I had a, had a go uh, but on the first day, he says, "Oh, um, do you think you could do you think you could run the gate tomorrow night?" Well, we were playing Rams Bottom United. Well, that was a big crowd, and it's the first time I'd ever been on a gate in a football match. Oh, bloody hell! So, and after that, I did the gate for several years until uh, I had a heart attack, and I thought I'll just kind of ease off a bit, you know. Um, so that was how I started, and uh, as a commercial manager, I was probably about as much use as a chocolate fire guard. Uh, except that the, the events are put on, you know, we brought customers in through the bar. So I think I helped in that way. Um, but one of the things I had to organise during that year I was doing the commercial bit was to um, do anything other than the football to do with a visit of FC United, who just started at the time. And of course, we I remember we sat down with the police, didn't we, Brent, you know, to plan yeah. how we were going to yeah. do it and manage the gate. So we got all the tickets printed. Uh, and all the rest of it and uh, that day went pretty well I think and uh, Frank Manning was the secretary at the time I remember him coming he says oh, I'm bloody glad you've done that he says <laughs> he says I couldn't have done that <laughs> he was a character wasn't he Frank yeah and yeah I, yeah how many with something nearly 2,000 folk 2,000 people on but it worked it worked really well and and you said like you're as much used as a chocolate fire guard on uh, on commercial but 
I, I mentioned it to Steve the other day. We had 11 tables, I think, that day, corporate, and you yeah. were biggest, uh, you know, you'd sold them 11 tables, so that's credit to you. I think, you know, that's a record. I don't think we've had 11 tables uh, corporate since then. So, you know, that's all. Don't pull yourself down, Michael, because uh, you did a good job on that on that side. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was good, and uh, it was a, a good game. Um, we only narrowly lost, I think, with 2-1, I think, wasn't it, something like that? Yeah, yeah. Because, um, uh, was it Ryan Giggs's brother was playing? Was he playing for us or was he playing for them? They were playing for us, Robert. He was playing for us at the time, that's right, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it was a good game and our lads acquitted themselves well and it brought, brought a fair bit of money into the club. You know, it was very good. And, in, funnily enough, on that night, the day after, it was a, it was a, a busy day in the club altogether. It was from early in the morning. I went over to the bank to get the change in Burnley and Brent was a bit of a practical joker. So I got this phone call halfway through. He says, match is off. I said, what? He says, match is off. Frozen pitch. I said, bloody hell. So I started, you know, <laughs> a few choice words came out and then he started laughing, you know. I thought, right, it's fine, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it was a cracking day. But on but, the but night, that was the next just, time Gringo Star played. The, the, the second time they played, uh, they and they were bringing their gear in as the last of our sponsors were going out of the lounge. So we'd been there from about, about nine o'clock in the morning till about midnight. It was a long day, that one. Yeah, yeah. Talking about practical jokes, I can get Steve. You're, you're not the only one. I get Steve <laughs> regular. <laughs> yeah, you <he's>, certainly do. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and, and now, as Brent said, you know, what once had, um, when I moved up here, uh, I've been up here five years now permanently, and I love it. It's a fantastic area. Um, Non-league football in the northeast, you know, they get terrific gates. And I think the reason is, you know, down in the northwest, there's far too much competition from, like, you've got all the Premier League clubs, I mean, even Burnley now, Burnley, the two Manchester ones, the two Liverpool ones. Then you've got your championship clubs, Rovers. Preston uh, and League One, there's so much competition in terms of bigger teams to attract crowds. Whereas up here, we've got Newcastle, Sunderland and Middlesbrough. And the non-league sides get decent ground, decent gates. And the other thing, they get a lot more coverage on the telly. You know, every, they do a... Pro, I mean, Northwest News do it, but you, if you get past the Premier League, you're lucky, aren't you, when with the reports because of the time constraints. Well, up here, they'll report on Newcastle, but they go right down to, uh, you know, um, Northern League level. You know, the report on Harrogate Town, who are now in the Football League, but um, Gateshead and uh, Spennymore and some of the non-league. So the non-league gets a lot more exposure through the television in the northeast than it does in the northwest, simply because there aren't as many big clubs uh, for the reporters to talk about. But it's uh, always been a, a bit of a bedrock, hasn't it, for, for oh, football yeah. that, uh, up there? Well, you look, I mean, I think there were two northeastern teams in the Vars final, weren't there, this year? Or so, so, I mean, the northeast teams certainly do very well, I think, in that competition. Well, South uh, Shields are a, a team certainly on the up at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some good sides up here. And, of course, they, 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 isn't it either West Auckland were the first World Cup winners, weren't they? I think something like that. Twice, I think, and they, they, yeah, they, yeah. So non-league football's a big deal, and um, one of the late. I, I have a part-time job here. I'm a lunch club leader now, 
So after 40 years of working with kids, I'm now working with pensioners, of which I am one. And uh, the our, our uh, secretary, well, one of the office staff, her son plays non-league for, uh, I think it's Willington in County Durham, and she loves it. She absolutely, the, she goes every week, non-league football, it's great. You know, your crowd, your supporters will mix. There's very rarely any argy-bargy between supporters. Um, they get on well and it's good crack you can uh, you know uh, admission prices are reasonable you get a damn good honest game of football uh, at Bake Up Bury you get the best pie in non-league <laughs> I had to mention that one uh, so yeah what I was going to say Michael are the, yeah. are the games going to be taking place this weekend because you know you guys up there in the north east yeah. they're in, yeah. the, in a lock, in, in lockdown yeah. at the moment no, I was. Uh, I I had to download all the guidelines because I'm also on the committee at the local sports and social club. We've just started a football team in Middleton as well. Again, there used to be two at one time, um, so I just go go and watch them a bit on a Sunday morning. Um, so no, sp- the, there's a list of exemptions. Sporting for things can take place, yeah. So the football's football's on. Whether there be, I'm not sure whether they let spectators in or not, but uh, they have been doing. In, in non-league games up here. But there was an issue in one of the... Uh, there was a charity match at a, near to a social club in one of the Durham towns, and about 300 fans all piled into the bar afterwards, you know, and, and of course it spread like wildfire amongst them. Up here where we are, I mean, I live in Upper Teesdale. It's a very remote area, and um, there have been very, very few cases actually in here. But because Durham is a single authority... Going back to the the restrictions, what what the uh, the government does, they look at it council area by council area. So the five northeast counties and Durham's a big county, uh, and there's an issue in some of the towns in Durham City itself, and which is a university city. In some of the larger towns, there's an issue. Out in the sticks, there's not an issue, but because we're part of the same authority, we get locked down. I mean, the same thing happened in West Yorkshire a few weeks ago. There was an issue in Halifax. Um, one of my sons lives at Bailiff Bridge in between Bacup, uh, between uh, Bradford and uh, Huddersfield, near um, oh, what's the name of it anyway? Bailiff Bridge is the place he lives, and um, but it's within the Calderdale area now. Halifax is in Calderdale, which is where the big outbreak was, but so they shut the whole of Calderdale down. So everywhere from Todbarden as far as Bailiff Bridge, we're in the same restrictions. It's the same up here. Northumberland's in it. Well, a lot of Northumberland, once you get north of Blythe and uh, Morpeth, is remote and rural, but yeah, the whole of Northumberland's in it. Um, but I don't suppose they could, I suppose they could, but it'd be more complicated if they tried to localise it, say, down to postcodes, you know. Well, well this is one for you, Michael. This is one. Yeah. Sorry, Steve. This is one. This is one for you then. So the rumor has it that Lancashire and uh, all all Lancashire are going on lockdown tomorrow. So we're on lockdown apart from Blackpool. So what what's the reason behind that? You know, you know what I mean. I would have I thought think. my first my first my, my, my first uh, <laughs> my first point would have been the reason Blackpool isn't because our friend Boris wants the economy to be. Uh, uh, all right, but like Steve rightly says, but nobody can go to Blackpool because we're on lockdown. So what's the point? Yeah, I don't think it's not a full lockdown. I think what what 
from what I can gather, the, the, the impression I'm getting, and I don't know because I don't live in Lancashire now, but the impression I'm getting is that um, you will be subject to the same restrictions that we are up here in the northeast, i.e. two households won't be able to mix. Uh, if you go to a, a restaurant, you're not supposed to mix with other people. You sit at your table. You've got to have table service for drinks, table service for food. Same in a bar. Um, but you, you can you can go out, but you're not supposed to mix with another family outside. But if you go to a pub, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you can manage it. I think in one sense, this rule of six is a simple rule. But when you start to drill down, and look at how you can practically do it, it becomes a bit more complicated. But I think that's the sort of thing you're likely to get in Lancashire, the sim similar to what we've got here. Uh, pubs to close at 10 o'clock. Um, you're not allowed to open until 5 o'clock in the following morning. That must be for Weatherspoon's lot, you know, when they go for their breakfast. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's... Uh, I'll be glad when it's all over, to be honest. I mean, I've not seen, uh, I've seen two of my children since March. You know, they are, uh, I've got eight children, you know, that's, uh, and they live, most of them, my, my daughter's in Australia. In fact, she was supposed, she said she's going to watch this show. So hello, Saskia, if you're watching. She's down in Australia, in Sydney. Um, I have two, two sons live in West Yorkshire and the rest of them live in Lancashire. Um, you know, some in Rossendale. In fact, three of them live in the same row in Britannia. It's like they've taken a row over, you know. Um, but I've not, I've seen my eldest son, he came up with his kids, and I've seen my eldest daughter, that she came up with hers a couple of weeks ago, once since March. So, you know, it, and and my grandchildren are all growing up, you know. I had a, I had a shot last, last time I saw my eldest granddaughter, you know, how much she'd grown. And her brother had grown as well. And so that's these kind of little things that families think about, you know, grandchildren, children, grandparents. It's hard. And, and the longer it goes on, the more it is having a serious effect on some people's mental health. No doubt about it. You know, the fact that you're, you're not able to see family and it's a hard thing to do. You know, I've got a friend who's had to isolate for um several months he had to shield you know because of a health condition he's got and he wasn't able to see his daughter and his new grandchild for some time you know um and that's replicated all over so it's been hard um so i'll be damn glad when it's finished hopefully they'll have a vaccine hopefully they'll this new test that they're talking about where you know, it's a spit test and you can get, you know, you get the result in 20 minutes and you don't have to send it off to a lab. If that happens and it's a successful one, well, that could make a hell of a difference, you know, in that it'll be, you'll be able to say, well, no, no, I haven't got it. I can go back to work. I can do that and the other. Long term. Uh, sorry, an, awful, an awfully, Michael, as well, there'll open more opticians up and down the country instead of having to go up to Barnard Castle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's more people. I've heard Barnard Castle mentioned, and I think um, an unforeseen consequence of that fella's uh, trip to Barnard Castle was that there'd been more people visiting Barnard Castle this year than there'd been for years. You know, so it's done a, it's done wonders for for restaurants and pubs. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think oh, that was a farce. That whole thing. Can you imagine? He was an advisor, so, you know, I've got my politics head back on here. 
he was an advisor, a paid advisor, not elected by anybody, but paid by the party to advise the prime minister. He became the story, his actions, and he was advising the government, you know, so that at the time when they're telling everybody to abide by the rules and not do this, that and the other, he flouts it, <clears throat> gets found out, keeps his bloody job. You know, can you imagine Thatcher allowing that? If it, and, and I've heard various people since who, uh, you know, former prime minister say, look, if an advisor becomes a story, he's got to go. And and as a result of you know, letting him carry on, and then he did that flipping press conference where he basically, I'm going to not swear, but I'll use a bullshit his way through it. Um, and he just, it, it was so contemptuous to the general public. And, the, and, and it gave the excuse to those who were a bit iffy about these regs. Oh, well, if he can do it, I can do it, you know. Mm. And I think that was a factor in uh, what we saw up here. We've got some beautiful areas up here with kids jumping off waterfalls, graffitiing on rocks. Uh, we went for a walk, and it's a lovely spot called Low Force, not far from where we live. And Catherine and I went for a walk one a Friday night. It was the Friday night that this lock, when they'd eased it. So the ante, it hadn't actually officially started to ease until the following day. But anyway, as we got, it was dead quiet through the woods. And as we got nearer to these falls, we could hear people talking and, and laughing. We walked and there's a bridge. You can look it up on the internet later. Called uh, it's called the Winch Bridge and it's been there since 18 something. And it's uh, and they were jumping off that. Uh, they were in swimming costumes. There was all these little canisters that they sniffed the nitrous oxide. Loads of them around. Cans, a pair of knickers at the side of the path, <laughs> and uh, human excrement in the woods. And I'm thinking, you know. And I'm not, you can't put it all down to Dominic Cummings. You can't, you know. And I, I mean, people who are saying that everything that's happened since is simply because of Dominic Cummings, but his actions and the fact that the government didn't remove him from the job um, fueled it a bit, I think, and gave an excuse to people who, you know, uh, were, were not, who didn't like having to abide by regulations. So I think he should have been gone. And on the, you know, the, He's if he's such a vital part of the machinery advising Johnson, what he should have done was to publicly sack him, but on the quiet, still get the advice from him. If he'd publicly mm -hmm. acted then, no, he's brought the rules, bang, that would have reassured the public, I think. Because when the chief medical officer in Scotland broke the rules, she went straight away or within a day or two, you know. Um, it was just badly handled. And, and it, I know it, that it, the, the, I'm just going to say, Michael, I know that the medical officer who called him out looks a little bit like Pentfold. Uh, we, never saw him, we never saw him again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's kind of been silenced. Yeah, I mean, it fuels, it, it just fuels all the uh, kind of stories about the, the just looking after their own and all that kind of thing, doesn't it? You know. It, it needed, because of the state of the country, it needed decisive action. And OK, it might be vital in, in the eyes of the government, you know, as an advisor. Well, you know, it was a, a bad mistake, I think, that one. But anyway, you know, the, the upside of that for Barnard Castle is that loads of people have been visiting it, you know. Uh, there are a lot of people who 
probably mention Barnard Castle now, and I haven't got a bloody clue where it is. And it's a great place to visit, by the way, you know, uh, as is Upper Teesdale in general. It's a lovely area, you know. People are friendly. There's so, many, there's so many contradictions at the moment. Nobody seems to yeah. know what we're doing. And no, no, no we've we, we've got a we've got a game on Saturday uh, yeah. against Pilkington and the FA Vars. Yeah. I know that Brent has been sending emails left, right, and centre, haven't you, Brent? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. What, what's what's happening? Oh, it's not. It's not. Listen, the, the sim simple fact is, is that what I can't understand, and and this in this in there a slight on uh, Pilkington, because let's be honest, at all non-league level, everybody's working hard and trying to yeah. keep him with the uh, with, with the way that we've got to do things. However. You know, I'm looking at it here for the, uh, the, the, the safety of the supporters, the safety of uh, my players, safety of my staff. And we've got, I've got uh, an email uh, that landed on my desk that was basically saying that we can't use the changing rooms um, because the council have shut the changing rooms. And if you've ever been to the, the setup at Pilkington, the changing rooms are great. You know, they're quite new. So, you know, there's no problem there. But we've got, because the council have closed the changing rooms, they can't use them. That tells me that there's obviously the, the concern because of the COVID situations. That's mm -hmm. why they've shut them, right? But now it's kind of, they've, they've, they've moved us that we've got to go and get changed 50 metres away off site somewhere else, right? Now, and we're limited to when, when we've, uh, you know, to get, there's no showers, which so there's no showers. We're limited for the use. Uh, they're expecting players uh, to then come out. Because, again, if you know about where it is, it's like a 4G uh, community facility is mm. where Pilkington play. So it's, it's kind of fenced off. It's not like your normal stadium. So basically, we are going to have to come out of the stadium where we get changed uh, or come back into the stadium. And then when you come back into the stadium, we've, we've kind of got to stay there. So half time. So if it's pouring down with rain or anything else, you've got to you've got to stay on the pitch. You've got to do your team talk, everything, all your preparations. Everything's got to be done. It's both sides. It's for both sides as well. They have to do, but that's not the point. And then they're expected to get in the car after and leave the ground. Absolutely, if it is a wet day, absolutely drenched, wet yeah. through, and travel forty-five minutes back. You know now to me. This is a national competition. It's the FA Vars. Now, I understand that there's, that, that, that there's kind of issues, but for me, if the council has said that their changing facilities aren't fit because of the COVID situation, they don't want it, how do we know that these where, the, where we're going to get changed are going to be any better? It, doesn't, it kind of doesn't make sense to me. You know, if we're going to go there, let's use the council facilities, you know, the, the changing facilities, because they're modern. Yeah. The, the, the new, almost new. So whatever changing facilities we're going to go into aren't going to be as good as the, the ones or as clean or tidier as anything as the ones that are there anyway. And then to say that you, you've, we know that we've got to isolate, we know that, and we know that you can only be in, but you've, we've got a limited time span that we can be in, and then everybody's got to be out. So the preparations for an FA Vars national game are going to go through the window. You know, normally we arrive at a ground at one o'clock, ready for a three o'clock kickoff, right? That's that, that's the normal. But is there any point of us arriving at one o'clock tomorrow? You know, when basically, and we're supposed to be able to get access to the 4G for two hours 
before the game kicks off because it's a 4G and we don't usually play on a 4G. But the chances are that won't happen. So that's not going to happen. So if we arrive at one o'clock and then we've got to be out of the changing room, we've got to quickly get changed and then come out of the changing room, we're just going to be milling around for like two hours before a game kicks off and doing nothing. So basically it's going to be back to the, the, back in the olden days where you turn up at a ground, you don't do your preparations right, you just got quickly get changed and we'll go straight into a game. But do really we want to be involved or anybody want to be involved in that sort of nonsense? I mean, the, the people not realise that preparing for a game, any game of football, if you don't prepare right, it, 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 it attracts injuries. Mm. You know, you've got to prepare right, but we haven't got the chance to prepare right because at the end of the day, we're, we're being thrust into a situation where... You know, it's kamikaze, and I'm not blaming Pilkington. It's nothing to do with Pilkington. Apparently, when uh, I've since been told that when St. Ellen's, because they use the same facility, were drawn against Camel Laird, Camel Laird arrived there an hour before kickoff, and the same thing we're going. They didn't. Re we've been warned about it already, but Camel Laird didn't get any 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 warnings. So they arrived there, and apparently they kicked off. Uh, and I mean, when I mean kicked off, they they complained. Yeah. You, you know, they complained yeah. about it and said, this is ridiculous, we shouldn't. And apparently, you know, the FA must have said that the game doesn't go ahead, but they, they agreed between the cells, well, we're here now, we might as well play it. But apparently, mm -hmm. we're all done in under due rest. Now, yeah. again, I've got to stipulate this. Isn't having a, a swipe at, at, uh, at, at Pilkington, not one bit, you know, or St. Helens, you know, they, they're utilising a facility that's probably run by the council, so they're dictated to a point. But my point is, is, is that, come on, we're in a national competition, there's a lot at stake in, 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 in games like this, where there's prize money, and obviously there's a trip to Wembley at the end of it for some lucky team, or two lucky teams. But, you know, it's just like, oh, it's a game of football. We, we'll just get it in. We'll try and play it. We'll, you know, just go and get changed in that corner, get wet. You know, it's not, we, we, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that can't happen. You know, and that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's mad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, strange times indeed. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, so I've had a great involvement with Baker Borough. Um, and, as a football fan, I've, I've enjoyed watching football at various levels. I mean, the highlight of me Preston fandom was going to the FA Cup final in 1964, a long, long time ago. Um, and I only got a ticket two days before the final. So I then got to try and find a coach. And the only coach I could find was one leaving a pub at 11 o'clock on the Friday night. Well, you can imagine what that was like. And because there was the motorway hadn't completely opened, so we were on motorway for part of the journey and just ordinary A roads. Um, part well, the coach the, the, the coach was full of crates of ale. They'd been boozing in this pub all all evening, and then crates with them in onto the coach because you know in those days you know they, they weren't as tightly regulated as they are now. You're not allowed to have booze on a coach now, I don't think. But then didn't matter so the crates of all sorts and of course the more you drink the more you want to pee so the coach driver was getting fed up you know you're having to stop every few hours he's right he says i'm not going to stop anymore 
next fella who wants to pee says you'll just have to stand on the step and do it while we're moving <laughs> so anyway we got to london about six o'clock in the morning and uh so we'd let the whole you know we got till three o'clock to faff about and then get to wembley well there were we did the usual things downing street you could go you could go in downing street then and walk up to it not it's not it wasn't gated off like it is now uh so we went to downing street and we were all chanting outside number 10 then we went to buckingham palace and doing the same there you know and then we encountered a guy uh, a bunch of west ham fans because we were playing against west ham in that final uh and it was all good natured you know um and it was a great game. We were 2-1 up at half-time. And Alex Dawson, the other Black Prince, he's got an absolute belter. He could head a ball almost as hard as he could kick it. And uh, there was another player in the same season, Peter Lorimer at Leeds, who an equally hard shot. And, and they had a bit of a competition where they, they measured the speed of their shots. And Lorimer just pipped him by about half a mile an hour, something like that. I mean, he was a real hell of a shot on him. So he scored, uh, Doug Holden, who, who we got from Bolton Wanderers, scored the first one. Then they equalised, then Dawson got a header, and then uh, they got two goals in the first half, in the second half and won 3-2. But the West Ham team had got Bobby Moore, so he was a class act to watch. They got Sissons, Martin Peters, same name as Brentson, um, a really, really cracking good side. Um, one of the, uh, Jeff Hurst. He was playing for them, you know. So it was a great... So, that you know, they, they, they acquitted themselves well, finished third in the league. And it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> Not all the time, but, you know, they've had their ups and downs. Um, so, yeah, as a Preston fan. And then when I was teaching at Fians, um, there was a lad attending Fians at the time. I never taught him, but other lads talked about him. Um, he was called uh, Lee Cartwright. And uh, he was sort of on Preston's books. Uh, so that was great. You know, I thought, great. You know, somebody at the school I'm teaching at playing for North End. Uh, and then I got to meet Lee later, not till many years later. He came as a guest to Bake Up Borough, didn't he? We, we did a quiz night and Lee was the guest along. And at that yeah. time, my son Ben was working with Lee uh, for a, an organisation that looked after kids in homes. And that's the sort of work Lee does. He After he finished playing... Um, he, he didn't remain in football. I think he still played amateur football till a couple of years ago for Haslington St Mary's, you know. Um, and then the other lad who, uh, Rossendale lad who I knew fairly well, was Mark Pugh, whose brother played for Bake Up Borough for a while, didn't he, Lee? Yeah. Mark was a lovely lad. He was uh, uh, teaching at All Saints then, and um, he had a great career. He signed for Burnley because he was a big Burnley fan. I remember him at school always talking about Burnley. Signed for them, but it didn't work out there. So he went to Bury and it didn't work out there. Went to Shrewsbury. And Eddie Howe spotted him at Shrewsbury, took him to Bournemouth. And, of course, the rest is history. He stayed with Bournemouth till the end of last season or the end of the season before last. Uh, he'd been a great servant, uh, a good lad, really, really nice fella, lovely family, um, and he'd had a good career out of it. And, and I think he went to QPR then, didn't he? I don't know where he's playing now. Yeah, but, he's so, there so, now, yeah. I think. Is he still there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good lad. So so that was nice, you know, that, that pupils who... And, and I, never, I didn't actually teach Mark, and I didn't. I never taught Lee 
uh, when I was teaching at Fians, I mean, Lee was too clever for me to teach. No, that's not a reflection on me, I hope. But, but uh, Fians, they used to have, um, when I was there, they, they got the full examination classes. Once they got to the, the fourth year, and then they got the rest who were part exam classes and we had a lot of kids out on link courses to college and that kind of thing. But Lee was in the, he was in the higher groups. So I never taught him. Uh, I watched him as a player. He was a fantastic player and he's prime. Uh, he, he, he got a cruciate ligament injury, which slowed him down, but he was a very, very fast winger, tricky winger. I know Spurs were watching him at one point. Then he got this injury and he was out for about a season came back, it was still good, but it just takes that bit of an edge off. You get an injury like this, and I put, you must be nervous initially, um, but you're never quite the same, I don't think, after that. Uh, but he was a great servant for North End, very popular with the supporters, uh, and again, a, a, a nice lad. Yeah. Well, before we leave it, because we're almost yeah. now, uh, what's your best moment uh, at Baker so far, Michael? Oh, there's a lot, really. I think... Um, Football-wise, from an organisational point of view, the fact that the FC United organisation worked a treat, so I was very happy with my the job I'd done to do that. Um, I think high point in football, I would say the, the the semi-final when we got to the cup and played at Bolton in the final. You know, um, we lost the final, but it was a great. We played uh, Barn Oldswick, I think, in the semi and beat them, and that was a great night. Um, no, no, uh, we, no, that one where uh, are you talking about the Reebok final? Yeah, which final are you on about the Reebok final? Paddy and we beat it, yeah, Paddy and we beat in the semi final, right? Oh, and well, then, any... yeah, Paddy and we beat in the semi final, and then we we got ASC filed at, at the Reebok, yes. I remember, well, I went to that, yeah, because we went to the hospitality, but the Baron Oldswick one was the challenge cup, That's and it. we actually we went on to win that. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, well, that uh, that night, um, yeah, I didn't go to the Paddinger, so that's the one. That was because I went to the Barn Oldswick game, and it was a heck of a game, really good game. Team played brilliantly, uh, and then I suppose from other, I think on the music side, uh, Baker Borough probably the Gringo Star gigs have always been fantastic because they're a great bunch of lads, and you get a good crowd in. Always a good atmosphere. Yeah, I've enjoyed my uh, involvement there. And, I, you know, I still do a couple of gigs a year at Bake Up, you know, mainly for charity things. We've got, I think the next one we've got lined up is sometime next year. Because one of the other things uh, I do is the, the administration related to the uh, school's football finals. I mean, at one time, you know, normally they, they'd kind of share them around the, 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 the schools. Well, when I was working at Alder Grange, my final job before I left teaching was working at Alder Grange. And um, the sports people says, do you, you know, do you think we could play the finals at Bake Up Borough? I said, well, we'll, we'll check it out. And we did. So we've, I think we've had about four, haven't we, Brent? And yeah. um, a fellow called Brendan Bairdy, great tall lad, isn't he? He's the head of PE at Bake Up and Rotten Soul Grammar School. And he tends to do all the, you know, the organisation for the, for, the, for the local high schools. So we always... We didn't have it last season because of the COVID thing, but for the previous four seasons, we've had the uh, year eleven, sorry, year ten and eleven finals at Bakeup Borough, one after the other on the same night, and we get a decent crowd. Parents come in, uh, and it's been good. And what it's done, the, the 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 school kids like it because they're playing on a football ground, 
rather than on a school field. And uh, it's good for the club because they can, you know, go in the not the kids, but the parents can go in the bar and Deborah will put food on as well. So it's good. And it, it kind of puts the club within the community, which is an important part of football clubs, you know, right through from non-league up to Premier League, you know, clubs who make an effort to be part of the community are, are valued greatly. Burnley used to do a great job and still do. Preston, they do. They have, you know, their, their mascot and the coaches going to all the primary schools. But Bakeup Borough is the only senior club in the Valley. And so it's important. I thought it was important that it could be part of the school setup as well. And then, of course, there's that link with Thorn School across the road. They have their sports day and all the rest of it. And these are important. And as a result, I mean, we've got people associated with Bakeup Borough now who grew up within sight of Bakeup Borough. Deborah, for example, you know, uh, a stalwart of the club. Um, Sean, who came along, he'd been coming since he was a little lad, you know, and he's part of the club. Martin McNulty lives just, you know, or lived where you could see the ground. Uh, so this community element to a football club is really, really important and something that I'm proud I've been involved in. Brilliant. Well, it's been, a, it's been an absolute... Pleasure to have you involved at Bakeup Borough, Michael, and, and an absolute pleasure to still have you involved at Bakeup Borough and doing a sterling job. You know, you're doing a fantastic job. Uh, you know, you know what it's like running a football club, and you know, when I broke all the secretarial job up in a few different sections, and the fact that you've continued to do what you do has took a big weight off uh, us here at Bakeup, and it's been a pleasure you know, to join in your tales today and a pleasure having you working here and helping us out at Bakeup Borough. Um, yeah. Long may that continue. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you. You know, I often joke that uh, I'll, when I die, I'll be either on a gate at a bloody football ground taking money or taking money off people coming into a gig and I'll just flake out, you know. <laughs> anyway, I hope not. <laughs> That's, yeah. Okay. No, you can... Anyway, no. hopefully I'll be down sometime soon, you know, and I'd love to watch a game at Baker Borough again when I can. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. I look forward to seeing you, Michael. All the best, pal. Top yeah, man. Thank bye -bye. you. Bye -bye.